Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Sam Andrew. I'm Alexi White. And today we are talking to each other, as in no guests, no liberal leadership contenders, no former party leaders, no experts, just us. In case you missed it, it's actually been a little while. We've been releasing a steady stream of interviews since we came back from the Christmas break. We've now interviewed all six of the Liberal Leadership contenders with their own interviews. Alvin, Kate, Stephen, Michael, Brenda, and Mitzi have all been through Ontario Loud. I would like to note that Pod Save America has yet to get Joe Biden. So, uh, really just the same. (laughs) Second Pod Save America. Yeah, exactly. um, so pretty happy with that. With the Ontario Liberals leading the polls right now, one of them I would say has a non-zero chance of being premier one day. So uh, if you're interested at all in that, listen to those episodes. Um, we also sat down with former PC leader Tim Kudak last week to talk housing affordability. So we just need Andrea and Mike Schreiner to have everyone who ran in the 2014 election on Ontario Lab. So we thought we'd give you a break from all the star power coming through uh, and give you an update on the news. We will be talking teacher strikes across Ontario, Ontario's looming energy shortage, the state of Ontario's labor force, and a roundup of the Liberal Leadership 2020 because uh, we apparently haven't had enough of that topic. So first up, in late January, the IESO, or Independent Energy System Operator, which is Ontario's crown corporation in charge of independently managing Ontario's energy system, came out with an annual planning outlook that had something that... I would say it's not like really newsy. They release the report every year, but it's worth knowing about. And certainly I didn't know before Alexi pointed it out. Background on the ISO. They are a crown corporation that basically manages the whole power system. They set the hourly price of electricity. They contract with uh, providers. They direct the flow of electricity across the power lines. And they basically manage the market, ensuring that there is enough power in Ontario to meet our demand. In their annual report that they released, and unbeknownst to me, Ontario is looking at seasonal energy shortages beginning as early as 2023. Basically, we have rising demand for energy, more people, more electricity-heavy enterprises, uh, transit electrification is a big contributor. But a system, our system is going to face significant capacity issues. This sort of increased rising demand is going to be met by uh, some decreased supply because there are some planned refurbishments of the nuclear power stations in Pickering and Darlington. Uh, Now, in the short term, the ISO says this can be solved by having auctions, which are basically importing energy from other jurisdictions like Quebec. But in the long term, existing plants like hydro plants, you name it, will retire. The contract that ISO has to meet our power needs will expire, and the province is going to need a strategy to replace all of this energy. And why this seems significant, why we want to talk about a little bit about it today, is that Doug Ford came into power canceling, of course, all contracts related to green energy. In Southwest Ontario, green energy was supposed to supply about 443 megawatts of power alone. One of the justifications the government has said for tearing up all these contracts and deals is that the province didn't need the power. Ford even went further in defending the contract, saying, if we had the chance to get rid of all the windmills, we would. So we have undersupply. That the Ford government has kneecapped even more. We have long-term demand rising. And so I read this and was like, this seems like a huge problem. And I sort of reflect on the impact that energy and hydro prices had on the liberal government. I'm wondering if there is a bigger picture that might kill some future government here. My reading of it was that I'm not at all worried about the seasonal shortages, um, certainly in the short term. Um, the peak demand issues are for, they say, a few hours on the hottest days of the year, basically. Uh, and we should be buying uh, excess power from other places during those peak times, uh, places where it's not as hot and they don't have the same demands. Because building your electricity system so that you can have uh, energy 
uh, created only within your own jurisdiction at all times, uh, including during those very highest peaks, uh, is is frankly a little bit wasteful. Uh, and um, the uh, report itself says that you can get increased competition fostered by this auction system, and um, that puts down and pressure on pricing and, and benefits ratepayers. So, I, I mean. I think the ISO is not too worried about it. I'm not too worried about it. Um, it, it. It makes sense to me that you would want to go to auction for for that peak demand for a few hours a year in the hottest times. Um, I think the canceling the green energy contracts obviously was stupid and and costly, um, but it were, that was sort of a few hundred megawatts of power, um, I think, four or 500 megawatts of power. Peak energy usage, it looks like you're going to have about two gigawatts, shortfall of about two gigawatts. So even with that extra power, it's not like the wind... Uh, farms made the difference between uh, dipping below our capacity or not. Um, I mean, it's important and it's more important for the GHG, the greenhouse gas emission side of things. So I think the really important question, which which Chris, you pointed out, is is the long-term mix of the energy that we're going to produce um, as you get more and more of the current contracts expiring through to 2040. So it's really, to me, it's not a short-term thing, it's a long-term thing. And one of the pieces of the report that stuck out to me was that the, the emissions, the GHG emissions, um, are projected to go back up as electricity demand increases. And and uh, so under the Liberals, the electricity system emissions came down from 35 megatons a year to under 5 megatons, which is an insane drop. Uh, but the projection now is they're going to creep up back up to about 15 megatons a year by 2040. And that's due to greater reliance on gas fire generation to meet the increased demand we're going to see from people using the electricity grid for a lot more stuff, which, which is good because a lot of the stuff they're going to be using the electricity grid for, they would otherwise be using, um, you know, other uh, power sources, which would be worse for the environment. So to some extent, it is good that they're switching to and using more electricity. But at the same time, it's important that that electricity be produced in a, a renewable way. Uh, and so I think for me, what I want to see and what I doubt we're ever going to see from this government is some kind of leadership to say, we're not going to let the GHG emissions of our electricity system grow like that. We're going to make sure that we are bringing on new renewable energy sources. We're investing in hydropower over the long term or whatever it has to be um, to keep those GHG emissions down toward 2040 and beyond. I think my take was similar to Alexi. I think the reason I flagged it is I thought that the coverage was sort of not fair to the Ford government in that they, especially the CBC was sort of poking and then the star was poking about the canceling of the green energy contracts and ripping up the windmills. And then, you know, Ford saying we're going to rip out all the windmills was sort of rehashed as, you know, they don't know what they're doing. They're canceling power when they're going to need power. And I think to Alexi's point, it's like, that's not really the case because of um, the nature of the shortage. And so I guess I it's a reminder, I think, that once, you know, the public and the media sort of turn on you, like even these small things like the management of the energy file for the liberals, things that aren't fair, I think can come can continue to uh, poke at you. But I think to Alexi's point, long term, Ontario is like revered around the world for its um, greening of its electricity grid kind of way before um, it became mainstream policy in uh, much of the world. And work backsliding, which is like not the right direction. And so I think it's not really a major focus of public policy here in Ontario. Like you don't hear people talking about like the GHG of our electricity grid because it's sort of seen as we've closed coal and um, we're moving on. Um, but it's much more complicated than that. So I think I agree with everything Alexi said. Yeah, I, I will say that in the intro to the story, I picked a purpose, purposefully sensational uh, How dare you? <laughs> outlay into it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think when you actually read the ISO report, what comes becomes obvious is that it's really 
these long-term contracts that are expiring that will give a government in the future a choice about how we how and where we get our future power and the fact that if we sort of rely on current sources we will continue to make further damage to the planet is not a good thing and we need to turn that around um the other actually thing that like i often hear in i'm not anywhere even approaching an energy policy literate person so might want to get someone like that on the pod soon but you often hear people sort of saying in the climate change debates like nuclear power is the solution. And certainly, I mean, it's a complex topic. It can be part of a solution. But uh, it, I think the particular issue that the plants in Pickering and Darlington pose is that like when these things need refurbishment, they really need refurbishment. You know, I'm remembering fondly that uh, text message we got about the Pickering, like there was a nuclear incident in Pickering that ended up being false. But like, you know, you really want these things being well maintained and like there's not a really good way to maintain them other than them coming down for a little while and because they supply so much power that has like a really measurable impact on the communities that they they live in and so i think that um you know for folks who sort of go to nuclear as like a panacea of our energy needs um it's a good reminder that it's like a much more complicated topic uh, than that i would like to point out that my snarky tweet that I ordered iodine pills after that um, text message uh, about the nuclear incident um, made city TV news. Snarky Twitter will get you everywhere. Um, okay, so moving on. So from something that might not be actually as much of a dumpster fire to something that is for sure a dumpster fire, Ontario's teacher negotiations. They are as hot as ever right now. Uh, since we last checked in, the confrontation between the government and the teachers unions has escalated quite considerably. Uh, all four teachers unions are engaged in job action right now. Uh, Blue, there are two strike days uh, this week that we are recording, the second week of February. Elementary public school teachers represented by ETFO have withdrawn extracurricular activities, field trips and have been holding rotating strikes across the province. Secondary school teachers are continuing their rotating strikes in certain boards after having been paused for the high school exam season. Finally, Catholic teachers have held two province-wide strikes. Teachers have also withdrawn from entering grades, which has caused report cards to be canceled in many boards across the province. The only glimmer of hope was when ETFO returned to the bargaining table for three days in late January, which quickly broke off. And in the meantime, Education Minister Stephen Lecce announced that the government will reimburse parents of kids up to age 12 for $60 a day in childcare costs during a possible strike, which as of our last update, about one quarter of parents have taken up and could cost the province $48 million per day at full utilization. So if the Ford government was hoping to put this very high impact issue behind them, um, it doesn't look like it's going well right now. What do we make of all this? And is this going to end anytime soon? Yeah, it's a great question. I think my sense and my read, and I mean, all the public polling bears this out is that the public is still very much on the side of the teachers, um, which, you know, was not a certainty. Uh, there's, you know, teachers are a well-paid profession and public sympathy can be a bit unpredictable. Um, and so I think that the teachers, particularly OSSTF um, in this, on the secondary side, have done a really nice job of bringing the public along on the two issues around um, bigger class sizes and mandatory e-learning uh, credits in uh, high school. And I think the public is, you know, firmly against those and they see that that is what the bargaining um, is about rather than, um, you know, wages or benefits. And so I think, you know, I think that teachers should be feeling pretty good. I get the sense that the government is going to legislate them back uh, sooner rather than later, even though it will create a significant legal risk for them. Um, I'm not sure how much stomach they have 
for this um, to continue, you do wonder, given their past use of the notwithstanding clause over something far less important with uh, Toronto City Council, if they will, you know, neutralize their legal risk uh, and use the notwithstanding clause again uh, and dictate a contract rather than, you know, take the legal risk of not using that, which, you know, would be a significant escalation that's never been done, certainly in Ontario history of using the notwithstanding clause to end a labor dispute, though it has been done in a couple other provinces. I I don't know how long this will go on, but I see that as the ending, the government legislating. I don't I don't see how they get to a voluntary deal. And then maybe the last word I'll say on this is I do think there is an emerging risk that the public is turning on ETFO, the elementary teachers in particular. I think ETFO has not done as good a job as OSSTF in bringing the public along on what the issues are. And elementary strikes are way more impactful, obviously, to parents and having to take time off work and whatnot. Uh, you know, like next week because of uh, family day and a PA day in the city of Toronto, kids are uh, elementary students are only going to be in class one of five days. You know, that is significant disruption. And I, I think there is a risk by next week that full is being seen to escalate faster than the secondary panel. And it's the secondary panel where I think the public understands what the issues are. And so I think if there's a risk for the teachers, I think it's ETFO's tactics being not matching the pace of what OSSTF is doing. I want to spend a second on the idea of the government legislating back to work. I mean, I agree. It seems like Things are quickly spiraling away from the possibility of some kind of negotiated settlement. Uh, certainly in the rhetoric from both sides, you don't really see a whole lot that would be uh, contributory to that. I can't imagine this is where the government started. Like, What do we think the government's objective at the beginning was and where did it – Like, I mean, surely I think they walked into this knowing they weren't going to make the teachers happy and that they were, were it was going to be tough. But this – can't be where they're hoping to be. I'm wondering if like where we think they might have been hoping to be. I think that they thought they would go out with the, we're going to increase class sizes to 28 and four uh, mandatory e-learning credits, and there's nothing you can do about it. And then at the bargaining table, they would offer to go down to 25 and two, and that the unions would be so happy about that concession that they would be willing to agree to a the one percent salary increase but also b the this is a bit in the weeds but there are local class size caps in every ossstf in oecta um, and afo um deal with the school boards meaning um you know shop class can only be 15 kids uh physics in grade 12 can only be you know, 25 kids, like very specific uh, local caps that were built on the 22 to 1 ratio. And so the government wanted to strip all of those out uh, to allow the 25 to work more effectively. Um, and they, I think, thought that this concession would be so impressive that OSSTF would cave, give up their local class size caps. They getting back the local priorities money that the liberals had given in the last round, um, which supports spec ed and other um, local priorities, which they gave back to QP. Clearly, the government had its intention to give back um, the whole time. Clearly, they thought that that was their strategy. I don't think it was a crazy strategy. I think if you know the unions well, you would know that wouldn't work, but I don't like it's not an insane idea. <laughs> I'm going I'm to take away <laughs> 10 of your marbles and give you back five of them. 
and yeah like it seems like like that seems to be kind of what the public understands about this yeah for sure and like so i mean they took a risk didn't work uh and now they're in a total mess but i think that's where i think that's what they thought they were going to accomplish yeah so where do the where do the vaughn uh, working family uh people come into all this sam um is this a, is, is, there was some recent information that came out that it's can like, we can, can we can we pause it for a second because yes. not everyone might know yes with yes. the vaughn working so in minister stephen lich's writing um a uh, newspaper ad i believe was taken out that was quite anti-teacher from something called vaughn working families it was called um, a shadowy cabal Yes, which doesn't exist which really is, which as is, an organization. And yeah, they used a, a picture of a woman from Poland in the ad. <laughs> anyway, so it's come out that it's somehow connected to a law firm of a guy who the PCs appointed to the LCBO board. So connected in some ways to the conservative circle, which I mean, it was government yeah. talking verbatim. So I mean, that's obviously not surprising. Um, who knows if the government actually like was connected to it or. If, was just an overzealous supporter. Like, really, I don't know that it matters. But I do think, like, it's impressive how poorly their messaging is translating. Like, nobody is buying what yeah. they're selling. And it goes back to the point about, like, their message of the whole thing and, like, their strategy, uh, the strategy that you so well outlined is that, like, we are being reasonable. We are being reasonable. They are being unreasonable. And my read of it, at the very least, is that, like, they didn't do a good enough gut check to sort of see where the public was on this because i think to your point the public never saw the education cuts as reasonable right and them sort of walking back half of them or however many of them is not read as oh suddenly being reasonable and so like when the last teacher strikes were in place in the harris government harris was elected with a mandate to take on overpaid teachers it was in the platform it was like the public sentiment was there and a lot of people think harris still lost that battle so yeah uh we will we will see how this rolls out but i i completely agree with you guys i don't see this getting better before it gets worse Sometimes I use my sister as a gut check because she's very like apolitical, has two kids in the system. Uh, and actually just last night she said she was talking to me about the strike and she, she said, um, well, I don't want bigger classes or um, cuts to spec ed. That seems bad. Um, but I'm not sure about the wage increase. And I think that that's like, you know, a really accurate probably summation of how everybody's feeling. Like nobody is following the details, but like they've distilled the core issues and the government is on the losing side of two out of those three. Yeah. How true, sir, before we leave this topic, because the wages are another thing, like government wants the public to believe that this is about wages, that a lot of their talking points have been about teacher salaries. But my, albeit rudimentary knowledge, because this wasn't my file at education, was that the wage issue almost never gets agreed on. So did the teachers actually have a case that like we disagree on wages, but this is not what the stalemate is about? Like, is that a fair, like it is really truly about class sizes and spec ed and local priorities? So I, there's a couple things in what you just said that I don't, that I would maybe push back on. So I don't think in the whole liberal 15 years, wages ever went to arbitration. I think they were always voluntarily agreed to. Uh, and they were quite generous for um, the first roughly 10 years, generally above the rate of inflation. Uh, and then from sort of 
2010 on, it averaged, I think, about 1%, maybe even slightly less because there was um, three years of wage freezes uh, since then. And so I think the teachers, not unfairly, are pointing out that they're due for an inflationary increase, especially the private sector um, wage increases have certainly exceeded inflation over the last number of years. I do think that the teachers want the 2%. I think if none of the class size and e-learning stuff was on the table and this was a normal bargaining session about wages and benefits, the teachers would have caved a long time ago at 1% because they don't want to be out on strike just fighting over one versus two. And obviously QP settled at one given a similar dynamic. But I think until the other issues are resolved, OSSTF is going to hold out because if this whole thing goes to arbitration, they're going to get way more than 1% because the average is considerably higher and arbitrators tend to look at uh, comparable agreements. And so I get why they're holding out. It's a distraction for the public for sure. But um, I understand the, the strategy. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's really helpful. So moving away from labor and uh, back towards policy news that you may have missed, the Financial Accountability Office of Ontario. Now, everyone in Ontario is tuned in to their every report, like we are. Uh, but they've recently released a review of Ontario's labor market performance for the year 2019. And it's actually mostly great news. 2019 saw the largest increase in employment on record, 210,000 new jobs created. Unemployment, however, stayed constant at 5.6% because a whole bunch of people entered or re-entered the labor market to fill these new jobs. The proportion of Ontarians choosing to participate in the workforce increased to 65%, up from 64.5% in 2018, so about half a percent uptick and this was only the second increase this was only the second increase in the overall labor force participation rate in the past 10 years the most notable increase in the labor force participation rate was for older workers 55 years or older with the rate reaching 38.7 percent which is the highest for that demographic on record Average hourly wages increased by 1.7 after inflation which is the strongest wage growth since 2008 so I read this and I made a lot of the uh, trumpeting of the economy uh, that you're hearing from any party that is going to be in government right now. The top uh, makes sense. The top line stats are quite good. I'm curious, uh, what, like, what do we make of this? What does it mean for politics? What do we take away from the report? Yeah, uh, I mean, this is definitely a topic that uh, our listeners may not be as engrossed in as the teacher strikes, but it's still about uh, wages and still about labor. So um, bear with us. Um, I think one of the takeaways that I found that was buried a little bit deeper in the report was just about how uh, uneven the wage growth has been. So it's great to see the overall wage growth going up. And it's certainly very solid gains for people. The, the main categories with really good gains are uh, professional scientific and technical services, uh, manufacturing saw uh, big wage gains, construction as well. Although employment in those sectors is not taking off as fast as in some other sectors. Service sector uh, employment is where most of the new jobs were created. Um, in contrast, the broader public sector uh, was much more modest wage gains. Um, so again, this goes back to the teachers unions conversation we were just having. So for example, uh, wages for healthcare and social assistance workers uh, increased by only 0.5% on average. Um, education sector wages increased by 1.7%. Uh, but that. Um, that would be, I assume, not driven by teacher salaries, but by um, people elsewhere in the education sector getting more than uh, 1.7%. And for the lower wage workers, though, the average wage gains were moderated. So there were very big increases in 2018 for lower wage workers. And that was because of the Ontario minimum wage increase. Uh, so 
Young workers, 15 to 24, uh, who are most likely to be employed in minimum wage jobs, they saw wage gains of 6% uh, last year, but that was uh, following 10.5% in 2018. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I thought the minimum wage was going to destroy the economy and the carbon tax is is destroying the economy. Are you telling me that that was bullshit? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the, this is government's data. The government's, uh, you know, trumpeting this as far as they can. Um, but it turns out that, hey, guess what? Increasing the minimum wage just makes people's income go up, especially the poorest people. Um, so, yeah, it turns out that it's great. It's driving uh, huge growth in the economy. We're not losing all these jobs that they said we were going to lose. The service sector is adding huge numbers of jobs. Um and this carbon tax that was going to destroy whatever shell was left after the terrible minimum wage had already uh, bankrupted Ontario um, seems to have had absolutely no effect. If anything, um, uh, it, it would it could be credited as helping to um, to push this uh, economic growth further forward. Yeah, I, I remember talking to some folks in finance at the time of the minimum wage, sort of like when the deliberations were happening. And, you know, there were a lot of folks who were extremely worried about the political, the seeming, uh, the alleged political nature of, you know, increasing it by so much so quickly. And, you know, a phased approach would have been better. And there's a lot of uh, both, I think, in the Liberal Party and in the bureaucracy worry about what that was going to look like. And, you know, I think uh, it's a really big teachable for probably even just like how we understand economic policy that, you know, um, in this particular set of conditions, we're not in a state where, you know, unemployment is out of control. Like the economy is still quite strong and definitely weathered any effects that the minimum wage increase had. In terms of stuff that I saw in the report that one thing also I think that progressive movements struggle with in this kind of a good economy when we have a lot of conservative governments in power is I think a tendency to not want to talk about the economy because it is good and to focus on other things. But there are also like elements like even though it's so rosy overall, you know, there are elements that I think talking about. Uh, is really powerful. Like urbanization in was a sort of a footnote in this, but it's a real problem. When you get outside the GTA for Ontario, things are much more bleak than the overall rosy picture. So much of the prosperity is generated in the GTA. And when you look to areas like Peterborough and sort of like those like more rural, even even sort of more rural urban communities, uh, you're seeing a lot of stagnation that is going to be increasingly problematic for the people living in those communities and you know like you can use to make a case for progressive policies that might actually help solve it like you know i when they canceled the basic income pilot i was really curious as to what impact that would have on Lindsay. like we think of rural communities as like relatively conservative places and they tend to vote conservative but you know these are places that can be in some cases the most assisted and might need the most intervention in a time where, yeah, there's a lot of growth, but that growth is increasingly centralized and not distributed equally across the province. Yeah, I agree. That's a challenge for the government. Uh, I mean, and the liberals face the same problem. I mean, the, the economy was doing well after after the, the big recession uh, for a number of years. And the decision was made not to trumpet the economic success all that much because the reality on the ground was that people weren't seeing that in their lives. Uh, and so when there is a disconnect, as there increasingly is in this age between you know, the top line numbers saying, look, the economy is doing great. And the reality in so many places of people saying, I don't see that. Like, what are you talking about? Um, you do end up with a danger for governments that um, can over 
overemphasize these kinds of things. Um, and so maybe that creates opportunities for uh, for the opposition parties in this case to point out the fact that uh, or to, you know, to make sure that those nagging questions are stuck in the back of people's minds. Like, OK, great. Um, you know, the economy's growing. But where are those gains going? I also think it was so it was interesting. So the Ontario participation rate in the economy going up is obviously a good thing in Ontario. Uh, in for women, it went up to 82%, uh, up from 81.5 in the previous year, but it is still third lowest among uh, the province uh, for uh, women participation. Uh, you know, in sharp contrast, for example, um, Quebec uh, women have an 87% uh, labor uh, market participation rate uh, compared to, again, Ontario being 82. That's quite a significant gap and a reflection uh, about of our child care uh, system in comparison to uh, Quebec's, which has much higher uh, participation accessibility. And just a reminder that we have, you know, so much further to go on gender wage gap and uh, equity in the labor market. So lots of room in a good economic time. There's going to be trumpeted by Doug Ford. It's being trumpeted by Donald Trump to talk about things we could be doing better uh, because we could be doing better economically if we did some things that were uh, in some way progressive. So last topic, and uh, we want to return briefly to the subject of liberal leadership because we talked about it a lot on this pod um, and folks who might not be uh, tuned in might be getting tired of it, but we wanted to reflect on it for a second because a lot has happened. Uh, we've talked to now all of the candidates. Candidates have put forward delegates to run in writings on their behalf. And by the time you're hearing this podcast, folks will have voted in election meetings across the province. So I want to talk about the race a little bit, but first some important news from us. At Ontario Lad, we will not be endorsing anyone formally, but after we talked to all of the candidates, Sam and I made some decisions for who for whom we might want to run as delegates. So Sam and I are both running as delegates for candidates now. We wanted to be upfront about that. Sam, who are you running for? Uh, so, you know, I went into the race with a really open mind and I was actually this week I was at the um uh, Liberal Party's LGBTQ plus uh, leadership debate uh, that was put on at uh, the 519 here in Toronto. And I was reminded listening to all six candidates that they are so much smarter and so much more compassionate uh, than the government we currently have at Queen's Park. And so, uh, you know, I'm really reflecting on uh, how happy I am that those six uh, folks put their names forward. And um, I think they'll all make great members of um, the Liberal Caucus in 2022, hopefully. Um, but having said all that, after watching, um, you know, several debates, looking at the policy positions and listening to our interviews here on Ontario Loud, um, I've decided to be a delegate uh, or to run as a delegate, I should say, for uh, Kate Graham. Um, so I think her approach to opening up the party in new ways is uh, really genuine. And I think she has the ability to reconnect in places in this province that the party needs to. Um, and I also liked her climate plan the best, uh, which to me is our most urgent policy area. So yeah, so I hope to get a spot this weekend. We'll we'll see. But um, yeah, wanted to be upfront about that. Yeah. Uh, similarly, actually, and for similar reasons, I will be running for Alvin. Um, and honestly, I didn't uh, totally expect to be there. I actually thought a lot about running for Team Neutral. Um, and I didn't uh, not expect to be running for Alvin because I don't think the world of him and his political talents I really do. Um, but I really sort of thought a long time about the neutrality of Ontario Loud and having it not be seen since he is a sort of former co-host as a sort of covert platform for him, which uh, we have really made strides not to uh, be um, uh, but um, for example I hate his Catholic school position for the record. 
but on that, I think he has made his uh, campaign about big ideas that will shake up the status quo that would radically change things how we do in Ontario, the way he's fronted basic income and childcare uh, speak particularly to me and things that I care about. Um, just the way I've seen him grow as a candidate throughout the debates. I think he's done something really important for the race, generated some media for the party around like really big progressive policy ideas. Um, and I really wanted to be there to support that. So for listeners, we're just telling you this because we wanted to be transparent with you about where our biases are now. We'll keep you updated and talk about the race as a whole still, but something to keep in mind when you're listening to our perspectives from this point forward. So we talked with all six candidates now and a Alexi, you are now our only truly neutral observer. Uh, so I'm curious what you thought about the interviews. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, so first of all, obviously, I'm, I'm based in British Columbia now. And so I have great respect for the Ontario democratic process. And I'm strictly neutral, uh, lest uh, anyone accuse me of interfering. Um, we don't want any foreign interference in the liberal leadership. Um, but uh, <laughs> or, you know, being, <laughs> look, it was a perfect conversation, guys. Um, but being, uh, I guess, being in BC, you know, I was, I was skiing uh, the other day after work, as, as one does here, um, amid the 200-foot trees and with the, the eagles soaring overhead. <laughs> and, uh, and I had, uh, uh, I was thinking about this question, and um, I, uh, I was inspired to write a, a short poem for all of our listeners about my thoughts is- on the Ontario Loud uh, interviews. So here you go. Alvin was genuine and wants to be bold. Mitzi's passion for education almost had me sold. Brenda was real and spoke from the heart. Michael decried polarization that keeps us apart. Stephen called for idealism without any illusion. Kate called for well-being, transit, and inclusion. So who was my favorite? That I won't declare. But my guess is the winner won't have very much hair. (laughs) I'm very impressed by that. I uh, I'm too. It is also Ontario Lad's first poem uh, ever, ever, ever. I believe ever read on the podcast. Um, Something we should probably work to not. (laughs) (laughs) I think we should uh, take a copy of this, uh, send it to um, Ontario Proud, and maybe Sandy and Nora. uh, best of luck to all the candidates. Uh, we will know by the time listeners listen to this who came out of the leadership election meetings the best. So um, at the time of recording, best of luck to all the candidates and keep you updated throughout the process. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. So now that the leadership election meetings have been done, it seems Alexi was right. Del Duca blew the competition out of water. But we technically don't know if he's going to be leader yet. There's still enough ex officio delegates plus the other campaigns to potentially have something happen. But it's looking like he might win on the first ballot. So um, well done, Alexi, with that prescient poem. Also, the education issue continued to make headway this week with a poll putting the public firmly on the side of teachers and class size, but showing less public support on the wage issues. Sam, good job predicting that one. Next week, we'll be talking employment support with Grima Tower Kapoor, policy director at Matri. We love having Grima on the pod, and this is a fascinating topic all about how we are doing supporting those who are unemployed and in need in the province. So tune in for that. Ontario Loud is myself, Chris Martin, Sam Andrew, and Alexi White. 
Carmen Mundy and Aisha Anwar do our socials. Philip Askew is our recording engineer. Ontario Loud is recorded on the traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit. This is a really dark time for Indigenous rights in this country at the moment, so please look at what, was ha- what is happening in British Columbia, the Wet'suwet'en relocation issue. Uh, chip in, donate to the legal fund if you can. This is a really shitty situation uh, that you should educate yourself about if you have not already. Uh, and on that dark note, we will see you next week. <laughs>